the Constitution sees Congress as the premier political institution. And Congress, through its incompetence, has been has been letting that power leak away from it for decades now. And they write laws that you can drive a truck through with, with these clauses. So like every fourth paragraph in this bill, uh, I, I say that a little bit metaphorically, but every so often it says, do this and do this and do this, except if in the opinion of the Secretary of Homeland Securities, uh, you want to do something else or it's the best interest of the United States or you feel like doing it. Do that. So this is the way American immigration law is written. All these laws. It's like here. Here's the law unless you want to do something different. Howdy, everyone. Welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment. And this week, it is just me. We had a streak, three episodes where Nick and I were doing it together. But alas, our travel schedules did not overlap in this case. But we did have a fantastic episode for you guys today all about the immigration issue, one of the key important issues in American politics today. Uh, we had on Jim Robb, who's the vice president of alliances and activism at Numbers USA. Uh, he was born in West Texas. He uh, has been involved with Numbers USA since its founding 27 years ago and is an author of a new book. But before I get to that, be sure as always to go to AmericanMoment.org. There you can find the backlog of this show, everything else we have cooking as an organization, uh, including our various programs. You can sign up for AM Fridays, which is our lecture series on Capitol Hill. It's underway now. Uh, every Friday, Chick-fil-A boxes in a room in the U.S. Senate uh, come listen to foundational lectures on important issues like immigration, China, trade, uh, foreign policy, etc., and uh, get to know the American Moment team. If you're interning in Washington or you have interns coming into Washington this summer, this is the uh, this spring, this is the place to send them. We also, uh, I think, are closed on our summer application for the Fellowship for American Statecraft, but I believe we have our fall interest form already up and running. So be sure to fill that out. We are eagerly sorting through our summer applications. I saw some pretty good ones in the pile. And so we're excited to bring in our fourth summer class and our uh, uh, first spring class ever has already started. So Uh, and then finally, we have our gala for American statecraft. This is the three year anniversary of American moment, a big celebration with our friends and biggest supporters here in Washington, D.C. on March 6th, 2024. Be sure to go to AmericanMoment.org slash gala. You can find everything about that. David Sachs is going to be getting the third rail award for public courage. Senator J.D. Vance is going to be speaking. Congressman Mark Meadows is going to be leading the VIP reception. It's going to be absolutely fantastic. So we're really excited to celebrate with all of you. If you'd like to sponsor it, be sure to reach out. We would always love to take your money. Uh, And there's some pretty cool sponsorship opportunities available. Anyway, back to Jim. Uh, Jim was born in West Texas. He was a voracious reader of newspapers and books, always hungry to learn uh, more. He's been at Numbers USA for 27 years, and he helped develop political activism across the web. Um, He has written a book, Political Migrants, Hispanic Voters on the Move, How America's Largest Minority is Flipping Conventional Wisdom on Its Head. I promise he's not saying that Hispanics vote Republican, therefore we should have open borders. Quite the opposite. He's saying that um, all is not lost and that uh, it's going to be Hispanic voters that give us the political capabilities to actually implement immigration restrictionism once and for all because they don't like mass migration either. So uh, it was an absolutely fantastic episode. We talked about um, 
this crazy Senate border bill that just crashed and burned, why HR2 was so much better, talked about his book, we talked about what he's afraid is coming down the line in terms of the border crisis, um, and all the harassment he's gotten along the way. I will say, I when I taped this episode, I landed at 7 a.m., actually no, 5 a.m. Uh, at JFK in New York City from Israel. And then I wandered straight uh, to another terminal and came back to Washington and had been at work all day. I'll tell you, uh, caffeine alone could not sustain me on days like this. And that's why we're so glad to partner on this show with Magic Mind. It's this little lovely green bottle. Um, it's uh, full of all sorts of incredible ingredients like organic matcha, green tea, organic agave, passion fruit, natural vanilla, olive oil, ashwagandha, macopa moniere, rhodiola rosea, and a bunch of other things I probably couldn't pronounce if you put um, it uh, right in front of me. You drink it right after your coffee and it helps even you out the, throughout the day. It makes it so you're not a crazy person attacking people left and right. Um, and it's really helped me be productive. I keep a crazy travel schedule, as many of you know. And so it's an absolutely fantastic product. And you can go to magicmind.com slash truth20, and that'll give you a discount code to buy it. We stock it in the office all the time. I scream at Nick whenever it's not present and he reorders it. You can get on a subscription. It's just absolutely fantastic. Buy some of these little green shots, Magic Mind. Once again, that's magicmind.com slash truth20 to get a discount from American Moment. We'll go now to Jim Rob. Jim, thank you for coming on the podcast. So, Rob, glad to be here. We always like to hear about how our guests uh, got to where they are today. You have a long and storied career fighting for some pretty important issues. Tell us that that story. How does one get involved in being, you know, one of the most demonized people in Washington? <laughs> <laughs> well, I started off life as a the son of a Methodist clergyman in West Texas, and I got myself to Kentucky to a, a Methodist religious college and where I went to college and, and, uh, and then when I graduated, I got into religious publishing for about 10 years. And when the Republicans won in 1994, I said, Hmm, if I'm ever going to move to Washington and pursue my second love of, of, uh, politics, now's the time. So I just up and moved and um, I started making calls and I thought I could probably get a job on as a press secretary. It was my ambition uh, with one of the new uh, Republican congressmen. But I found out you basically have to have a relationship with a campaign to to move in that position or already be on the Hill. So that was that proved very, very difficult. I came in second, like in t five or six offices to, to get that that job. So I called my old friend, Roy Beck, who I'd known um, back in the day. And I said, Roy, what are you doing these days? He said, immigration. And I said, well, tell me about it. And he told me about it. And he said, are you interested in writing some some immigration research articles? I said, well, you bet. And I started writing some articles for him for some various publications. And after a while, I helped him make this video uh, about immigration and in world gum, gumballs and world immigration. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And the legendary gumball video. We'll right, link it below. It's so interesting. Yeah. So we, we made the first version of that. There've been two versions and, um, it, it, so we, we, we sort of rented out an office and had a bunch of VHS videotapes that we were trying to give away. 
and we even we even had information infomercial uh, time that we rented on cable networks to tell people about this thing to try to give them away. We had a modest grant to do that, and uh, so we gave away about forty thousand over a few years, and then one day someone uploaded it to a new thing called Google Video, the precursor to YouTube. And it immediately went to number one of all the videos they had on Google Video. And it stayed number one for about three months. And then it went to number one political video they had. And it was the number one political video for years. Wow. And so we thought, so based on that in a book that we just explain for our listeners what the gumball video is just yeah. the basic details of it right so roy uh used he, he had a, a demonstration he developed for his son's eighth grade class it's kind of bring your dad to work day and and uh no no it was bring your your dad and to, to to school and he tells about his work that's it and so he did this demonstration with a big canister of gumballs and he showed why it was impossible to cure uh, world poverty by bringing people to the United States. And he had these canisters of gumballs. And so um, every year, America would take uh, about a million immigrants from around the world. So he put one of these large, colorful gumballs into the jar. And the jar is pretty near full in, in already. And... And then he said, then he'd say, but every year the people of the world are producing 80 million more people births over deaths at that time. Maybe it's a little bit less now. And so he would pour that, uh, uh, that into another jar. And he say, then we take, we take another million, say we take 2 million a year. And every year these people are, are everyone else is producing like 80 million more people. He says, and he does this two or three times and pretty soon it spills over. Right. And famously, the, the we got the shot when we, we did the video of it spilling all over the floor yeah. and it just goes everywhere. He says the, the problem is we can never take care of this problem by doing this. Yeah. So he says we really want to help people. We have to help them where they live because 99 percent of them could never come to the United States. They're too poor. See, the really poor people can't come here anyway. It's the people who are higher up on the on the totem pole that can uh, or the pecking order that can they can make it. So mm-hmm. that was that. And also has there was a demonstration of how, how big the population of the U.S. was going to be if we continue at at the present pace. And uh, it was you know, it's a striking thing visually. Uh, in 2016, a truck driver in England had a, a Facebook page, and he uploaded this YouTube video onto Facebook without asking us, and it became a sensation on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, it the thing has been seen about 175 million times. Wow! It, it may be the biggest political video that's ever been made. So a lot of people say, you know, numbers USA, what's that? I say gumball video. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. So, yeah. you, so you went to go work on numbers and you helped produce the gumball video. That's right. We started numbers USA 27 years ago. Uh, it was a, a year or two after we made the, the, the video, but demand had started and people were interested. And, and um, we did it because Congress had a, there was a commission that, 
that was headed by Barbara Jordan, who was a, a famous black American congresswoman from Houston. And she was a former congresswoman by that time. And she's a Democrat. And she uh, she was appointed by Bill Clinton to head a, a, a commission to straighten out U.S. immigration policy, rationalize it, modernize it. They came up with a good proposal. And um, unfortunately, by the time they were ready to submit it to Congress, she died in, I think, 1996. And the Clinton White House kind of was being pushed by the left of the Democratic Party to back off of this this thing because they were going to they were going to suggest that we somewhat lower immigration and then modernize it in many ways that we do e-verify. They this was a the commission that started the e-verify project and and make that mandatory. So um anyway that didn't uh that didn't go through. Only a few of those things went through. And so we started Numbers USA to try to get those proposals through. Fantastic. Um, there's so much in the history of the immigration issue. And I find myself having to remind people all the time that every time you think you can strike a grand bargain with the left on this issue, they will lie to you. It is not worth it. They cannot be trusted. And patriots like yourself and Mark Krikorian and others over the years have really eloquently described why that's the case. I think it'd be really helpful for our audience, and this is the bulk of what I want to talk about today. Um, this Senate border deal that was headed up by Senator Lankford um, and a couple of other senators, uh, bipartisan deal, um, what's wrong with it? Um, you know, it seems to have been killed for now, um, but I think it's a perfect synecdoche of all of the major issues that exist when it comes to actually doing immigration policy in Washington. Uh, take it in whatever direction you want, but would love to just get your, your 10,000 foot view and then, and then we'll get granular. From 10,000 feet, the problem with the bill is it gives the executive, the administration more power. And the problem is power needs to be taken away from the administration. So the constitution sees Congress as the premier political institution and Congress, through its incompetence, has been has been letting that power leak away from it for decades now. And they write laws that you can drive a truck through with with these clauses. So like every fourth paragraph in this bill, uh, I, I say that a little bit metaphorically, but every so often it says do this and do this and do this, except if in the opinion of the Secretary of Homeland Securities, uh, you want to do something else, or it's the best interest of the United States, or you feel like doing it, do that. So this is the way American immigration law is written, all these laws. It's like, here, here's the law, unless you want to do something different. And um, so because of that, well, probably it was written that way because it's so complex and then Congress has such a hard time agreeing on things, mm -hmm. right? But it also expects that the con that the president will be faithful to apply the laws that Congress passes. But we've seen on on in both parties for for a few decades the desire to uh presidents become in impatient with the process 
and they want to if the if the Congress won't do what they want, they want to rewrite the laws themselves. And you always feel good about it as long as it's your guy. But it's not always going to be your guy. So the next guy gets in, he does just the opposite. And this is why we have laws so that we have something that's set down. It's the process. Every party has to follow it. But it, things aren't working that way right now because our this is this is one of the real problems we have in our our form of government today. The executive's gotten too much power, and Congress, like this bill, the Senate bill, is only reinforcing that. So they so they were going to solve the problem of the border by giving Biden more power. And the problem is that Biden has used the power he's already had to ignore the law, to roll over all the constitutional norms. And he's got way too much power already. They need to be taking away power. So actually, the House of Representatives passed a wonderful bill called H.R. 2 um, in late, late last spring, and it would solve the whole problem with the border. And uh, the actually in, I think, June, the Senate took up that bill. It was it was going to be attached as an amendment to a spending measure. And I think 46 senators voted to do that. And two Republicans weren't there to vote for it. That would have been 48. So they only have 49 senators. Um, it came close to passing. My point is a really good bill nearly passed in the Senate, but all Democrats opposed it because why? They're guys in the White House. Now, if it were Trump in the White House, they would be doing the opposite they'd be saying oh we want it we don't want the power of the president usurping the constitutional role of the of the congress but this is one of our big big problems in government today is that each party in government thinks that they're the cheerleader of the president if as long as he's it's their party but that things aren't going to function well as long as they have that attitude so Chop it up for me in a couple pieces. What were the major elements of this border proposal and what was the problem that they were trying to solve and why was their solution inadequate? Right. Um, their solution was inadequate because they did not agree beforehand what their goals were. Mm -hmm. If their goal were was to eliminate illegal immigration, they would have taken a different tack. Mm -hmm. That's obviously not what their goal was because this bill could never do it. So I think they were working from the idea that they're going to improve the situation, reduce illegal immigration without cutting into the president's power. So and so the, the, the bill, we have a couple of problems at the border that that created this. Um, part of it is not caused by Biden and part of it is. So all around the world, we have people trying to game the asylum process. This is every advanced country in the world has this now. So we have to go back to World War II. And the World War II, we had a lot of people who needed to get out of what country they were in because otherwise they'd be killed and there was no real mechanism in the world to, to handle this. So after the war, the asylum system, as we now know, it was set up internationally on a couple of treaties. And so the, this, this, and, and it, it's a, it sets a process where people can come to a country and say, look, I'm going to be persecuted or killed in my country. If I stay there, I have to come here. Will you, will you listen to my claims? And there's a, there's a court process. 
And it, if people, if the judge says, yeah, you know, that sounds right. It, you sound like you've got enough evidence here. Uh, we'll grant you asylum. You really become something like a refugee here, but it puts you on a path to citizenship and okay. Well, the immigration lawyers of the world got a hold of this some time ago and said, gee, if we get people to a border and they say this magic speech about being persecuted, then we can jam up the system and they'll have to deal with the claims and the, we can get the courts so so backlogged that our people can get into the country in this sort of semi-legal, semi-illegal status. And by the time anyone's heard their claims, it'll be too late. They'll be so ensconced into the American fabric. So this problem's happening all around the world. We're doing one of the poorest jobs of dealing with it. That's the first thing. The second thing is something called a parole authority, which is in American law. So the president can or his his government can bring people into the country, even if they show up without a visa on under parole. This sort of means even if you don't have any legal right to be here, it it looks like you've got a humanitarian reason and we're going to let you let it slide with you. Come on in. And it was really envisioned and used for a long time for like medical reasons. Mostly someone showed up, they're dying of cancer. Only your country has a doctor that can help me, but I'm sorry, I don't have a visa. Okay. You go there. We'll straighten your situation out later. But the president Biden saw this as a, as a, since there weren't, firm limits in the law, he, he found this loophole and now hundreds of thousands of people I mean, a year are being brought in by whole categories, not one at a time, certainly not for medical reasons or something legitimate like that, but maybe favored people groups. Maybe if you're from Venezuela, you're going to be waved in on, under parole. And, and, um, we, so we're, we're talking, six, 700,000 people a year and people with these bogus asylum claims similar. So we're, we're, we're between everything that's happening and the, the people who overstay their visitor visas and people who, who just flat out sneak across the border. Um, we're having maybe a couple of million people a year coming into this country on a illegal basis. And in some of them, and then, the administration allowing them in, they come in, their their court gate dates for the asylum claims are set out mm, maybe 10 years from now. And it, even if, if, and very few of them would ever pass the asylum test. I mean, just a fractional, tiny number. It's all bogus. Everyone knows it's bogus. No one's deceived by that. So... What was um, the Senate's proposed solution right. to uh, this broken asylum process, and why did it fall short? If if the illegal traffic at the borders reaches five thousand a day, it would have the the bill would have given the president the authority to uh, expel people without giving them a hearing and giving giving them a hearing far in the future, and then letting them into the U.S. Uh, but 5,000 times 365, that's, you know, hundreds of thousands, one, one, one point well, five million and change. That's right. <laughs> that's right. And he, he didn't have to shut down the border. 
that. He might could do it if he wanted to. He could also say he didn't want to do that and not do it. But under no case could he let less than 1,400 completely unqualified uh, immigrants in a day. In other words, even when it's shut down, what's 1,400 times 365? So it's like a half a million mm-hmm. a year. That's the minimum number, of, of which in any to any normal administration, this would be like an incredible emergency. That was the level that this law would 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 say that that's the least amount of illegal immigration that we could accept. Mm-hmm. So it, it was a bizarre law that was seems mostly not wanting to hurt the prerogative of, of Biden and whoever follows Biden to break the law. Well, it would make it lawful, but these people... It wouldn't make these people have claims. They wouldn't have a visa. They wouldn't have good asylum claims. These were the fourteen hundred. That would be the minimum. These were people who have absolutely no claims on coming to America, but they would have to process them in to be in compliance. So it would make the situation probably worse by putting a floor, a high floor on illegal immigration. Um, let's see. It it would increase the credible fear standard, but only small. It, it Instead of basically now it's just, if someone gives a story that's possible, they're, they're being persecuted. Um, now it's, it's uh, I think the word was reasonable. So that's a very small difference um, as, as a, as opposed to the house bill, which that gives a, that makes it more probable than not that a judge would rule in favor. Um, let's see. Um, oh, unaccompanied children are completely exempted by the law. <laughs> so they, in other words, a million could, could march across the border and that would not trigger. And when we say children, do we mean like children, children or like, uh, yeah, it looks like a 24 year old military age male, but he's 16. We promise. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. That what we've got now. So, uh, um, let's see. Immediate, the bill would give immediate work permits to aliens released from custody. Now it's a process. Not into this bill, it would be given immediately. Oh, and it adds 50,000 additional green cards a year for five years. So that's a quarter million more green cards to compete with American workers for no reason, except that anytime there's an immigration bill, the the immigration expansionists want to put in more green cards. Um, does not mandate construction of the wall. The bill would not. Uh, does not end catch and release. Instead, explain catch and release. Catch and release is uh, so the law, as it is now, mandates that if someone comes and claims asylum, you why the why their case is being um, uh, while they're waiting to hear their case. They have to be in detention, but they don't do it. So they're sort of caught in between not having enough facilities and certain court orders uh, and just the policy of the administration. And so they just release them into the country. I mean, they release them that day. So what the law says, if if you come in, you say, I'm being persecuted. What it envisioned is might may have to wait around for a few weeks to get your hearing and you decide or not. And if you, if it's turned down, you're ejected from the country. Instead, what happens? People come, they make that claim. Everybody knows there's nothing. They have no documentation. They have no nothing. Um, 
and the release that day with the order to appear in five or 10 years. Very few of them will ever even apply for asylum. To claim it when you come across the border is not to apply for it. That's a whole different process. And few of them even do that, less than half. And then very, very few ever see it all the way through the court because the judges throw them out because there's, there's nothing to it. These are just economic refugees. And that just means they want the job. What's that number uh, of what's the ratio of people who claim asylum and actually accepted asylees? Uh, well, of those who get the, the cases they get to the court, I think it's like 15 percent are accepted. And that's the cases that get to the court is less than half of. Mm-hmm. So we're, t- we're talking single digits numbers yeah, of asylees are actual legit. And it's I'm, all sure, bogus. I'm sure that the rate of acceptance of asylees is also artificially high. Like these judges are probably somewhat ideologically motivated. And they committed. might be. Some yeah. of them are okay. Some are not. Yeah. But the, the, but the thing is, I mean, you, what if you're really being persecuted? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's imagine and people do are persecuted regularly because mm-hmm. there, there are five things I think that you can, that are illegitimate under American law. It's a religious persecution, political beliefs, you're a part of an unfavored people group. Maybe you're some kind of minority. Racial. I think there's one more. Rel- religious, do we say that? Mm-hmm. And so if, if you're really, someone's like, coming to your village, they're going to shoot you. Most people in that situation go to another part of the country. I mean, people are not trying to, unless it's the government of the country, it's like they don't even know who you are in some other village. So most people just move, mm-hmm. right? If there's some, But what if it's the government? when that happens too, right? So you normally go to the next country over because mm-hmm. they're not trying to shoot you over there. They It's a different government. They don't care, right? So these people who are coming to America, uh, they're no longer coming from Mexico. They're mm-hmm. coming from, they're, they're passing through four, five, six safe countries to get here. Well, that's also against the law. They're supposed to pass, they're supposed to apply for, for asylum in, this, in the closest safe country to their own country. Mm-hmm. I mean, if they if they really just wanted to be safe, they wouldn't come up here. Mm-hmm. They're want, coming up here because they want the American dream. Uh, and of course, that's understandable. But sure, like the gumball uh, metaphor well demonstrates, you can't you can't sustain that for just about everyone. Um, how did HR two, uh, the House bill that uh, a lot of immigration patriots thought was really quite high quality, how did it deal with these problems, namely asylum, to start with? Okay. Well, it substantially raised the credible fear standard and closed asylum loopholes. Um, and so right now people make a little speech that's printed out by the, the lawyers, the cartels, whatever. And they just say these words and they're pretty much they're They're allowed in this. That would no longer be the case. Um, and also it gets rid of catch and release. So you would no longer be able to be released if you if it couldn't be held here. We'd put you in Mexico. I mean, it would make a kind of a, of a weight in Mexico program. It would put it more in law. I mean, and of course, Biden brought all this on himself. Biden's 100% responsible for this because uh, he ran against Trump's policies, which were working to get down the number. It was not nothing. We still had a, a lot of people coming over, but we had a remain in Mexico policy. We had people were expelled more. We had the title 42 thing that COVID allowed people to be returned immediately. And it got the numbers down and Biden on the very first day, he overturned all those policies that remain in Mexico. Wasn't like we were 
sticking it to the Mexicans. This was a go- a, an agreement with the government of Mexico mm-hmm. to do this. So he just abrogated uh, that, that uh, I guess, wasn't a treaty, but an agreement. And he put nothing in his place. So, I mean, Biden's the most non-creative president. He's destroyed a lot of stuff, but he's not done that much. So at least in immigration policy. So it's mostly mostly what he tore down and and failed to replace. And um, that that's why it makes so many people wonder whether he's actually against illegal immigration at all. Sure doesn't seem like it. So you were telling me right before we started taping the show that you know, for the the historic immigration fights like Gang of Eight, you had you know a year and a half to marshal a response to it. This time, you guys had like three days. <laughs> right. Um, walk me through just the play by play Monday morning quarterback it for me um, from the moment we started getting whispers that this deal was going to exist um, to uh, what seems like it's it's ultimate demise. Um, how did that work, and what were you guys paying attention to throughout the process? Well, first, of course, we were trying to get all the information from what the likely bill outlined was, and it, it was leaking, so that was good. But we didn't know for sure, and they they kept saying, "Oh, Langford said uh, it's it what you've heard, what you, what's been leaked is not what the bill is. To so pay no attention to that, it's going to be so much better than that." So, of course, even though we felt like the bill was going to be bad, we had to wait to see the text because who knows? Maybe maybe he was going to turn out to be right. So the, uh, but what we, we did was we, we got our, got our ducks in a row. We got, we, we got our, our technology ready. We got our, our, our people were told for weeks. That is our activists, hundreds of thousands of activists back home. They were told that to, to uh, expect this, start calling your senators now, tell them that we want HR two. We don't want some watered down thing. And, uh, to, to put that pressure on and education, education. Of course, we're working on the Hill. We're always working on the Hill. Our, our retained lobbyists and our, our dedicated staff um, and, and working with the, all the coalitions we're part of, the many coalitions we're part of. And we're, we're part of a formal coalition on this particular bill uh, that include heritage and, and, um, um, uh, judicial watch and I think CPI CPI was a part of it and and um, a bunch of groups so we were we were working together as uh, usual but also um, being ready so then the bill drops finally they said it would be some it would be dropped the text would be dropped sometime between Saturday morning and Sunday nights so uh, Grant Newman said that means Sunday night because <laughs> they wanted to give people the yeah. least possible time to review it. Of course. So he pulls an all nighter. We have legal, our, all our legal analysts pulling all nighters. And then of course, every serious immigration uh, specialist in, in, in Washington is, is pulling an all nighter and going over this line by line. And so by Monday morning, we were ready. We started rolling out the publicity and the, and the emails and the and the videos and everything to our our people and telling them what's what and you know cry bloody murder call your senators uh, and uh, of course and and other groups were doing this as well so the uh, the 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 senators the Republican senators uh, 
found out very quickly that people hated this bill, A, and this bill was nothing like what the backers said it was. It, it was not going to. Uh, so I, I don't know a single person, sir, in this town who follows immigration policy for a living, who thinks that the, the Langford Senate border bill would cut down even illegal crossings. It, it might change the composition a little bit, but mostly it would make matters worse because it would put a floor on illegal immigration. And it's, 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 and as Tom Cotton says, the correct amount of illegal immigration is zero. Zero. You're right. Um, one thing I like to say about um, one thing I think that people misunderstand uh, this whole process is they think there's like two, two forces and they're really three or more. Uh, people think there's or people who are border hawks like us. And then people think that there are people on the left who really want to open the borders. Well, those that's true. But there's a huge other force and the business right rep, represented by the business right, but also the bulk of the Democratic Party is bought into this, too, which is that uh, what we want to do is turn the illegal into legal immigration. So the way to, to solve illegal immigration. So this group says we don't want illegal immigration, but we want cheap labor. So the thing to do is to meet the people at the border. And instead of turning them away, we want to give them a green card or work permit or something, bring them in. And now no more illegal immigration. And we've got plenty of cheap labor. Mm -hmm. And uh, sorry, Americans who haven't gotten a raise for 40 years. You just have to keep waiting. So that's that's the big hidden power that's always at work. So that's why whatever every time you get an immigration bill, not HR2, it's a great bill. But usually you get something about another quarter million green cards or something. It it they they tend like the Gang of Eight bill. This is so much reminds me of the Gang of Eight bill, which would have tripled immigration because everyone got in on the, the, the feeding frenzy on the creation of that bill. And they were created whole new categories of immigration. Mm -hmm. Because if you're if you start from a, a presupposition that the problem with America is that we don't have enough workers, then you're going to do everything possible to shoot up immigration. But if you start thinking, well, what's happening to the American workers we already have? Where are their opportunities? Who's mm -hmm. looking after their interests? You come to different conclusions. Absolutely. What is this experience fighting this bill back while simultaneously getting one of the best immigration bills we've ever gotten passed through the House with HR2 told you about the lay of the land in Congress on the immigration issue right now? Um, if you had to handicap, you know, compared to 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 30 years ago, are, are we close to to some sort of real comprehensive bill getting passed that might actually finally solve this problem? Or are we just as far as we've ever been? We're pretty far off, unfortunately. I think Republicans have made progress. Republican, there's a, a large group of Republicans now who seem to care about American workers. When I first started this work, it was a much smaller group, mm -hmm. more I think the U.S. Chamber of Commerce had a pretty good lock on most of the Republican Party at that time, mm -hmm. although there were many exceptions, mm -hmm. many, many exceptions. But um, 
in in the meantime, um, well, I'm looking at uh, uh, J.D. Vance's um, uh, book right there, Hillbilly Elegy, which I read when it came out, and how powerful it was. And he's gotten himself in the Senate, and he's a powerful voice. There are many others who who are worker-oriented, and this, this is refreshing, right? So we hadn't had that much in the Senate before. And there's Tom Cotton and a, and a whole, whole group of them who um, Marco Rubio's been great in the last few years. And and um, it it gives me hope for the Republicans. And in, in the House, while, while we had Paul Ryan as Speaker of the House for, for a few years, he was a libertarian and he he was he felt that the market would solve all problems, mm-hmm. basically. So. Uh, and businesses wanted more workers by that. They mean uh, more workers at the price we want to pay them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so things, things were worse in the past. I think things are better now, mm-hmm. but unfortunately the democratic party has moved further left. And uh, when we started this work, we had lots of Democrats who were on our side, uh, less so now, but every once in a while, good new voices emerge now. We've got Fetterman talking about talking like he's he's interested in workers work the American worker. The problem is we've got a kind of form of government that um, not, not too many people seem to be concerned about workers, right? Uh, the working, not just the working poor, but just workers. It's like uh, the parties are neither one are really centered on the people who are just trying to make it. And maybe they don't have the uh, uh, maybe they don't have as much education, maybe they don't have as many contacts, they don't have as much money, and um, the their deal has gotten worse uh, in in the last few decades. Um, when I was um, first coming to Washington as a young man visiting here. Uh, the all the roofing in the city was done by black people and the cab drivers were black too, Americans. Um, but that's all changed to wholesale and now it's done by recent immigrants and basically. Um, so the, the problem is the thing I wonder is where have all these folks gone? Have they all gotten now jobs on Mahogany Row? They've all they're all got executive jobs. No, to to have someone underbid you and to, to get a job that you normal you would have had doesn't mean you get automatically an opportunity to get a better job mm-hmm. it it may explain why the uh, worker participation rate has gone down for decades we have people who uh, so if you have someone who's just gotten here from another country and they're willing to live in housing that Americans, What's it kind of illegal for Americans to live in some of this housing, right? Because it's below code and uh, sort of a worker, foreign worker flop houses is a big issue in the Washington suburbs. Um, so it, and, and they're they're not expecting much here. They're sending most of the money back home and they don't have American expenses. And if they need a doctor, they may go to the emergency room to show up. So a lower cost structure, maybe they're earning money under the table, right? So they're able to underbid. And, and then if the, if the job site changes languages, 
then people who don't have a fancy education can't speak that language. Mm -hmm. And now they, they can't get a job there at all. So what happens to people like that? I don't think the American system is and the American policy is it it's too much uh it gives too much concern of, of those cases but it's a big big issue so i want to talk a little bit about the book that you've written that talks about uh hispanic political participation in the united states why don't you give me just an overview of what the thesis of the book is what interested you in this topic and then we'll dive dive much deeper yeah so i i head up the polling effort and numbers USA. And we work, we worked with a number of, of pollsters over the years. We worked with Kellyanne Conway for a few years before she went to the white house. And we've had a relationship with Rasmussen polling for many years. And so, um, we have a, every few weeks they're running another poll for us and we ask immigration questions. And over the course of a year, we interview tens of thousands of people or they do on our behalf about immigration questions and other questions. And I noticed a trend starting about 10 years ago of Hispanics beginning to change their answers. I saw a movement and I thought, well, this is interesting. And I'm interested in, in Hispanic culture. Anyway, I've traveled in South America and had family members living there. And I've come from Texas, a border state, and have been been uh, traveled extensively in in the in the Hispanic heavier parts of Texas and speak some Spanish. So I was interested in it, but then I I saw this in the polling and I said, "Is anyone paying attention to this? I think this. I think that Hispanics are going to be moving more Republican, and I think immigration is a part of the answer." And, you know, I, I was so puzzled or, or mystified because, uh, the way the, the media handled this, handled, uh, this issue was that they suggested that Hispanics are going to be more democratic or at least more liberal or maybe. And they're, they're voting because, because Republicans are not enthusiastic enough about, about uh, immigration, but especially because Republicans want to crack down on the illegal immigration. They assumed that Hispanics would all be for illegal immigration. Well, I start seeing in the polls that, no, this is very far from the truth. The Hispanics voters who are citizens uh, are hostile and almost implacably hostile to illegal immigration. And um, so I started collecting all the other polling and I started seeing as as. Well, with the, the, the nather of, of Republican fortunes with, with Hispanics was probably the Romney campaign. He got 27% of the, of the vote, of the Hispanic vote. And um, the, after, after that happened, the very night that it happened, Republicans went into a complete meltdown and panic over that exit poll number. And said, "Oh, the reason Romney this is this is the, the take. The reason Romney lost was that he was hard on illegal immigration, and he should have been instead said that that we're going to open up the country to and, and so that we can get his banks because then they'll be for us, and then we can win elections, which we can never win. So uh, the 
all the the immigration expansionist uh, elements of American society and politics got together uh, starting immediately after the election and made an immense effort to pass what became the Senate Gang of Eight bill to to that would have cranked up immigration, tripled it in the first decade and doubled it after that. So uh, it took us a year and a half to knock that bill down from the time it was first proposed to the time the final nail went in the coffin. And it's it's a story. It's in the it's in the book as a as a little part of it. But um, so uh, that bill didn't pass. And sure enough, as I was watching it, um, I guess maybe a lot of my interest came from that because I, I, I just felt that these were com- that that the Republican uh, institutional take on what had happened on the election was 100 percent wrong. Mm-hmm. I felt that Romney was rejected uh, by lots of groups because he had this aristocratic air. He didn't have the people's touch. He and and then you had a very, very talented politician in in Obama who Republicans had talked themselves into would be very easy to beat for a second term, but he was, he was super talented and people could, uh, people felt that he was uh, more accessible, could have a beer with him and that sort of thing. Romney didn't seem like that. So anyway, uh, sure enough, uh, as I started, uh, focusing my efforts on this polling, I started doing specialty polling and, uh, over time, the evidence became so clear that that Hispanics were hostile to illegal immigration, but also that uh, they had some very other other very unusual uh, uh, policy ideas that I saw that were going to lead more of them into the Republican Party. And so I proposed this book and wrote this book, and it was published uh, in late 2022. And it's called uh, Political Migrants, Hispanic Voters on the Move. So, uh, so many of them have been literal migrants uh, in, in our American uh, history. Uh, but now the, I, the, my, the point of the book is that they're political migrants now moving from one tendency to another. So here's a few things that people don't know about Hispanics in America. There are 62 million as of the census of the 20. 20 census and two thirds of them were actually born in this country. So this is, and of the others, 8 million came in legally and have naturalized or American citizens. So this is basically not a foreign population. Hispanics are Americans too, by and large. Um, of course, that's coming a little less true as all these new wave of illegals are coming in, but they're not all. Hispanic. Right. So this doesn't count the you know, 14 to 40 million illegal aliens. <laughs> well, um, you know, it discounts some of them. I, I think, uh, I don't agree that the number is that high, but it's maybe, maybe 14, 15 million, something like that. Mm-hmm. I agree with that, but it does count them. But those, that's, those are the people who are not citizens. Mm-hmm. And, but, uh, 40 million were born in this country and 8 million have been naturalized. That's 48 million. Mm-hmm. So that's a huge population of voters. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, wither these voters, right? And most immigrant populations in the U.S. for the last 150 years have started off as Democrats. Democrats are best organized in major cities where immigrants land. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one reason. 
uh, the Democrats have always been the party of government and government services. So they, they've got sort of the best first deal to immigrants. Right. And uh, it all it sounds good. Um, so their idea, we're going to help the little guy, et cetera. It sounds good. It sounds compelling. Um, and sometimes people come from places that are more socialist leaning. And so maybe the, the Democratic Party line sort of goes more naturally mm-hmm. what they've been hearing. But as people come in, they their sort of underlying assumptions start coming to the fore mm-hmm. and uh, they start realigning. And we've seen that. So think about Italian-Americans. A uh, hundred years ago, Italian-Americans who were fairly new to the country then were mostly Democrats. But a poll was done uh, in 2018 and found out that the two groups, two ethnic groups that are most Republican in America are German-Americans and Italian-Americans. So that kind of surprised me. I wouldn't be surprised about the German-Americans, but Italian-Americans, because I that had not been my image exactly, although, you know, it sort of makes sense. But you know, over time, they that group collectively saw its interest more represented with a more conservative party, and it went that way. So anyway, wrote the book, did a couple of very large-scale polls. So one problem with ethnic polling is it's usually just a subsection of a of like a thousand person national poll. So very often, if you want to see what the Hispanic breakout is or the African-American breakout is of a, a poll, it might be 75 or 100 people. So it's hard to get very accurate polling with those little numbers. Mm-hmm. So we did a poll that was uh, 2,700 people, Hispanic voters, and asked them all kinds of questions. And I, I had studied Hispanic polling and polling questions to Hispanics for years, and I was ready to go. So um, we asked all a, a lot of the usual stuff and some unusual stuff. And I found out some not too surprising things. I found out the more religious Hispanics were, the more likely they were to be Republican voters. I found out that that if people attended church of any kind at least once a month, more than 50% of Hispanics in that group were already Republican voters. Mm-hmm. So um, now it's it's often reported that uh, Catholic Hispanics are like 35% his, uh, Republican and that Protestants are like over 50%. Mm-hmm. But I thought ab- about that and I thought, you know what? I wonder, but since since uh, Hispanics often say they're Catholic, even if they have no real connection to the church, because it's a it's a uh, cultural thing. I just wonder if I put a church attendance uh, filter on that, what I would see. And I found out in my polling that when when uh, church attendance was equalized so that both Protestants and Catholics, I considered the people who attended services once a month or more. Both groups, as of my major poll, were were voting Republican. Uh, so it was sort of the same, actually, once you get people who really come. Mm-hmm. So that's, of course, I mean, the most reliable thing to decide to to determine, uh, not de- maybe determine, but uh, to to predict how you're going to vote in America is religious attendance. Um, so it's true in Hispanics and 
and, and others. Blacks, a little bit less so. Talk to me about uh, the generational change. So, you know, foreign-born, non-foreign-born are two categories, but non-foreign-born is a pretty big category. And is there any meaningful difference between someone who their parents moved here or their grandparents moved here or their great-grandparents moved here or their great-great-grandparents? And what does that tell us about how assimilation is going in America? Yeah, assimilation is going pretty darn well in America. I saw this. I was kind of surprised, actually. I found out the big difference wasn't generational. The big difference was English language assimilation. Mm -hmm. The more English language oriented the people were, Mm -hmm. the more Republican they were. Wow. Um, And another thing that was interesting is how happy people were in this country. Now, Hispanics are thrilled with America by and large. It's compared to other groups. Um, they, I mean, sometimes on TV and the news, you, you just hear from people who are unhappy, right? In general, you assume everyone in America is unhappy with America, but that's not true. So, uh, the, yeah, the, so the Pew asked this question. I thought it was really interesting. And I asked it too. just wanted to make sure. And yeah, the, the more happy people were with their experience in America, the more likely they were to be Republicans or to vote Republican. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, the more English uh, oriented they were, the more, and, and there's also a, something they, they call in, in, in Rasmussen primary and secondary ethnic identification. So if you ask people what the race is and they say Hispanic uh, versus white or black or whatever, uh, that's primary identification as Hispanic. But then they ask the second question, like the Census Bureau does. But regardless of what your race is, are you of Hispanic heritage? And if they say there's some other race like white or, or black, but then they say, yes, I'm of Hispanic heritage. That's a secondary uh, heritage. That's a secondary identification ethnicity. So we, so that's how the, the Census Bureau and with our polling capture that group. So there's big differences politically between those two groups. If their primary identity is Hispanic, they're more uh, they're more liberal and they're more democratic. If their primary interest is or if their secondary interest is Hispanic, however, um, they're more Republican and and their views on immigration are a little bit different. Although all the Hispanics, there's there uh, majorities of even Democratic Hispanics are really hostile to illegal immigration. There's no group of American citizen Hispanics who are anything who are friendly at all to to illegal immigration. Why would they be? It hurts their interests. It adds competition. It hurts their reputation. A lot of you you must have had this experience, right? So <laughs> people who are who are illegal immigrants really resent illegal immigration by and large because it it like puts everybody in it sort of causes a causes people might look at me and think i'm illegal or or whatever the attitude is Mm -hmm. and it's like yeah it's it's embarrassing it's like gee and i found out also from my study in this that there's another thing people assume that if someone's grandfather was an illegal immigrant that they're therefore going to be for illegal immigration no makes no difference Mm -hmm. 
parents, right? It's like, I can't help what my grandfather was. I know what I am. I was born in this country and I don't want people sneaking over here. Mm -hmm. So talk to me about the ethnic breakdown. We say Hispanic and what a lot of people that I know that are into demography say is there's no such thing. (laughs) You have Cubans and Paraguayans and Brazilians and Mexicans and Ecuadorians and El Salvadorans and it's it's it seems like we have a, a singular conversation and you know people also like to play this uh this kind of uh, uh game this kind of sleight of hand where the pro-immigration crowd mass immigration crowd will say well golly gee look at here at the cubans and then you know they'll pretend like all immigration is cubans and well that's not quite right and then right. you know it's possible that some people are being uncharitable by picking out the 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 most uh, suboptimal uh, group of people coming over. So, so walk me through the the sort of ethnic breakdown on these matters. Well, as w- is well known, Cuban Americans uh, are quite conservative and Republican uh, because they came from a communist country. Mm-hmm. They hate communism. Republicans seem to hate communism more, <laughs> and being pro anti-communist sort of makes you pro-capitalist and so they're looking what's the party and and that's the the most pro-capitalist well so they that so that's true that's a, a generalization that's proven true um however so and and maybe a a, a more liberal and democratic group traditionally has been mexican americans but also puerto ricans but there's movement in both of those groups mm-hmm. now um, as it's the movement depends on where you are in a couple of ways. If you're more religious, you're going to be more conservative and Republican. Well, I mean, it's, it's, um, religious maps to all kinds of other attitudes, right? It's a lot of social and moral stuff that Republicans are very different on than, mm-hmm. than Democrats, but also, um, it, uh, churches tend to emphasize law. So, I mean, uh, you're a Catholic. I'm a I'm a Protestant. All, all the services are about is the law. What are we going to do about breaking it? Right? <laughs> it's all about the law. Mm-hmm. We take the law very very seriously mm-hmm. in Christian circles, and so uh, that tends to make you, uh, you you can't be like friendly toward law breaking like illegal immigration. So it kind of maps that way, um, and uh, but anyway, so the the Right. So the Mexican-Americans, the Puerto Ricans, who are, of course, born American, are are um, moving now, but it's they're not all moving at the same pace. The people who are got the who are the most assimilated. Um, you know, I think the best way to look at this is, is that Hispanics are really like other Americans as they become more assimilated into the mainstream of America, they start voting like other Americans. And, uh, that's it's, so it's, it maybe 25 years ago, two thirds were more democratic leaning. Now it's more splitting a little, maybe, a, maybe 45, 55 right now. Some polling in the last month has shown, um, that Trump's ahead in a hypothetical matchup against Biden. Harvard Harris showed that the other day and and uh, Gallup came up with a poll this this week, their their annual uh, political party identification poll. Did you see that? They say uh, they show which groups are, say, in the year 2023. So they're doing for last year. 
uh, say they're Republican versus Democrat or Republican leaning versus Democratic leaning. And Hispanics were now only eight points separated the Republican leaners from the Democratic leaners. Well, wow. that's they've lost tremendous ground. The Democrats have lost. Is that is that ground. is that forty six fifty four or like there's a bunch of people who are neither. There are some people who are neither, uh, but it's it's in the um, yeah, it's it's more like what you said, but I'd have to have that right in front of me mm-hmm. to know. No, no, that's fine. Uh, but but also blacks of have, have lost twenty points in uh, affiliation to Democrats. Wow. When you we look at both groups, they're still well ahead. Democrats are still well ahead, but the number has the number who are who are disaffiliating from from the, the Democrats and affiliating with Republicans has has shifted enormously. There's been another thing of young people have have uh, are now moving away from from Democrats. Um, I mean, it's part of these are long term trends and part of them are it's the Biden effect. Mm-hmm. Right. So you have to we'll have to see what happens long term. But I th- I think overall assimilation is going pretty well uh, with Hispanics. And I think the the fact that this group is pretty new in America so when I when I was born, lo these many years ago, um, there were only five million Hispanics in America. Now there are probably 65, 66 million as of today. Wow. So most people who are Hispanic in America or their or their forebears only arrived in the last 50 years and many of them much, much more recently. So. Uh, they're going to move a lot politically in a short period of time. I mean, finding their their legs, finding out who they really identify with. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the worrisome thing for Democrats is that their their hold on the white working class has been shattered over a lot of these working issues. Mm-hmm. And the thing I can't understand about the Dem- the, the Democrats is how they think they're going to keep a long-term majority in the in the country with ethnic minority populations the working classes of other ethnicities moving against them too mm-hmm. i think that first they they lost the white working class now they're losing the hispanic working class and we see signs of the black work, move, working class moving too what if it's not just the white working class what if it's working class people moving there are not enough college-educated people to move the other direction to make it make up for that. Mm-hmm. So, the Democrats and there are plenty of Democrats like Roy Teixeira who are panicked about this. Um, there, and it's it's I write about this in my book that they're they're really in trouble long term. And where does immigration come into this? A lot, because as as Roy Teixeira and certain other analysts. Who really watch this closely say it's it's that with the the Democrats uh, compromised and and uh, and and went left on immigration in part so that they could get the Hispanic favor and get this group forever. Instead, it's alienating them because it turns out that you know not that many people who who are in the United States are thrilled about having more and more competition, especially from illegal aliens. So, you know, Jim, I, I, 
I hear everything you're saying and I can just see the chamber of commerce functionaries, you know, just, just absolutely excited everything they're saying. Isn't this the argument for much more immigration, uh, from mm-hmm. Latin America? These Hispanics, they become good Republicans in short order. Uh, why not get the best of all worlds? Uh, you know, we get the cheap labor and they vote Republican. What, what, what's, what's, what's the problem with that argument? Well, the biggest problem is that we shouldn't use politics to determine who should be citizens. Mm-hmm. If you don't like your citizens, you shouldn't fire them and hire some more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have people, and I especially look at the case of, of black Americans uh, who are, you know, America is the end of the line. So here's the problem with a free, free market. Mm-hmm. There can be a free market in capital. So uh, if you're on the wealthier side, you can send your capital over to any country of your choice and make money and bring your your money. But in labor, it's one way if you're an American, because whereupon people from around the world come here and work. We can't afford to go there and work because, A, it's illegal and they they don't take it as gladly as we do. Right. And secondly, Americans can't afford that. I mean, you you imagine American dad leaving leaving his family and saying i'll send you back money i'm going to go work in mexico well you know he's he worked it's say he miraculously is given a job down there and he sends a quarter of his income back up it's not enough to pay the bills here it doesn't work that way it's one way so there can be no free market in labor and uh so we've got a lot of people that's this is the end of the line it's not just people i say black because because there are a lot of people who'd rather hire anybody but someone black. So be, to be frank, I, I, and but there's also what if you're in Appalachia? I mean, where do you go? What's you, you, you have no mobility. Someone can come in and take your job. You can't go and get someone else's job. Mm-hmm. And so what's wrong with it is it's greed. It's immoral. It's unpatriotic. It's ungrateful. Uh, the poor people of America, I mean, working class, I don't mean pitifully poor, but the poor, but the working people of America have, have fought every war. They've made the sacrifices and, and, you know, we educated people are, are showing like zero gratitude. So that's, <laughs> that's the first thing. The second politically, yeah, it's great that people come to America and become Americans. We, that is great. Uh, and eventually they sort of vote like other Americans, but. You know, it's going to take, that's like a 75 year project. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, uh, why are you trying to displace Americans we have now for what might happen to you in 75 years once people get completely assimilated into this country and their grandkids are voting Republican? Mm -hmm. It's crazy. I mean, that's not what drives it. It drives it for the Democrats some, right? They feel they're they're probably wrong, but they feel like they can get easy votes by bringing more people Mm -hmm. in. That's for America, for, for Republicans, that's not, that's, that's not good strategy. Uh, but on the, on the Republican side of things, the people who are for cheap labor, they just, it, it's, they're looking at it short term and what benefits them. I mean, who, who doesn't want to be a middle-class, what bourgeoisie person doesn't want to feel like they're a big shot having someone clipping their, their head rather than themselves like our fathers did. Yeah, it's great. You know, I've got my own, got my own hedge clipper. Uh, but it's having a tiered, a tiered, uh, uh, 
labor pool and a, a, a society like that, that, that kind of strata where I'm up here and I've got some poor person who's just arrived and they're going to take my job for $8 an hour. Uh, that's not a good strategy. And I'll say this too, Saurabh, um, the, say it's not $8, say it's $12 an hour. You can't feed a family for $8 an hour. And I mean, it's not only you shouldn't, you can't. So what happens? Well, that means that there's no money for the doctor. So you show up at the emergency room. Your children are born in this country. They they qualify for food stamps. You get that. So you get um, uh, you get a very high percentage of all the illegal alien families in this country are on one or more social welfare programs because they're not because they're bad, because they're poor. They're so dirt poor and they're being they're being they're being hired at these terrible rates. So. It's it's not fair. And what happens is, you know, we have something called the privatization of profits and the socialization of costs. I know you've heard this. And when if it's it's like, yeah, I mean, who was who wouldn't want to save some money and hire a cheaper worker? But what if that means that that worker is forced to turn to the state for part of their income? I mean, I've made money, but everyone else living around me has lost money with that. It makes a lot of sense. Um, for our subscribers only segment, I'm going to ask you a couple more questions, uh, namely, uh, what's the thing you're terrified about coming down the line on immigration policy? And then maybe some light questions as well. For those of you who don't know, this is our new subscriber program we're doing for season four. Uh, you can go to YouTube and uh, there's two membership options. There's truthers and statesmen. Uh, that's $4.99 and $9.99. Both groups get access to this weekly bonus clip that we're taping. Um, they get the show 24 hours early, so you can actually watch it on Sunday after church if you'd like. Uh, and there'll be bonus episodes later in the season, chances to win tickets to live events that we host, and much, much more. So be sure to go to YouTube and subscribe. We are having a lot of fun with these first few clips that we've put out, um, some lighter fare and some darker fare. Uh, you get a little bit of both, the sweet and salty. So we'll uh, go now uh, back to the episode. We're grateful as always this week to bring you this episode in partnership with Upward.News. Upward.News is a fantastic political news website run by our friend Ari. Uh, their daily brief brings you need-to-know news and insights that you won't find in the mainstream media. They've put out fantastic content on Instagram, on Twitter, and many other platforms. Sign up for their newsletters at Upward.News. Um, you know, even with political insiders, many of whom listen to this this show, it's helpful to have people who can collate the most important news items happening uh, across the world every single week. And Ari does that with his various newsletters at Upward.News. Once again, that's Upward.News. Thank you so much for helping bring Moment of Truth to our audience. So, uh, Jim, where can people keep up with everything that Numbers USA is doing uh, and what you're up to? Where can they buy the book? Tell us how they can find you. Well, Numbers USA is numbersusa.com. And uh, we've made it pretty easy to join. Um, it's a free membership and we send you lots of stuff to be involved. We make it easy to, to call Congress, to, to send them emails, to go to town hall meetings, to all the things you can to influence them. We, we tell you everything you need to know. And just go to numbersusa.com and sign up. And then uh, my book is available on Amazon and, and wherever you order books. Uh, it's called Political Migrants, Hispanic Voters on the Move. 
and uh, it it uh, it kind of tells you everything you need to know about the Hispanic experience in America and what their political thinking is and why it's changing. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Jim. And thank you for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Good to be here. Hopefully you enjoyed that. We certainly enjoyed taping it. I will say uh, something I really try to do my best as a young whippersnapper changing Washington is to give appropriate honor and praise to the people who have been fighting the good fight for many years. Numbers USA, Center for Immigration Studies, uh, Federation for American Immigration Reform. These organizations were in the trenches for 25 years when there was no institutional response inside the Republican Party and the conservative movement against mass migration. They were the ones doing the research, marshalling the activism, getting out there, getting in people's faces. They're outspent 100 to 1, 1,000 to 1 in every single fight they're involved in, and they've won. We have not gotten a mass amnesty since these organizations got organized a couple of decades ago. So thank your local immigration restrictionist, usually kindly boomers who have a lot of experience and wisdom. Um, you may not that you may think they're not radical enough, but but they've really done incredible, incredible work. Jim's one of those people and as are many others. So uh, we're grateful as always that you guys listen. Be sure to go to AmericanMoment.org to find AM Friday's Gala for American Statecraft featuring Senator Vance and David Sachs. Be sure to rate and review this podcast. Be sure to subscribe on YouTube. Be a truther or a statesman. Get the episode 24 hours early. Tune in uh, to these bonus clips that we're taping and get many, many more perks. Um, be sure to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, subscribe on YouTube. And uh, in general, you know, send us a bunch of money, uh, you know, whatever you'd like, really, whatever uh, form of support you can do. We always appreciate it. And we always appreciate you guys listening to this podcast. As always, thank you very much. And we will see you next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment podcast taped at the Conservative Partnership Campus Studios and is produced by Jake Mercier, Jared Cummings, Tiffany Kutris, and Matthew Pearson. Our intro song is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich, and our website is AmericanMoment.org.